This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, well, our guest is actually someone who, when we first dreamed up the show, I actually put his name down on a list I made of people who were like dream guests, but who I was way too afraid to invite on before I got better at this. So he's a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, formerly of ESPN, 538, the author of a mind-blowingly awesome book that drops today, at least when this releases, called Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s New York Knicks. He's the one and only Chris Herring, and we're going to talk about sports, culture, faith, all that good stuff. But first, uh, let me set the stage. So we've talked the last few weeks about the Book of Exodus, about the most famous journey in the history of world literature. And until now, we've talked a lot about how that journey began, escaping from Egypt, crossing the sea. But this week, I want to talk specifically about the culmination of that journey, or at least a culmination of the journey. And that was at Mount Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments, another one of those epic scenes in the history of society. Now, perhaps one of my favorite observations about the Ten Commandments is this really ancient tradition, it's like centuries upon centuries old, about their literary structure. So the first half of the commandments are all about a person's relationship with God. Don't worship other gods, don't take the Lord's name in vain, that kind of thing. While the second half are all about a person's relationship with other human beings. Don't steal, don't covet other people's stuff, don't testify falsely against another person, and so on. Now, all this checks out. But what about that commandment right in the middle? The fifth commandment, if you're Reformed or Calvinist or Jewish, the fourth commandment, if you're Catholic or Lutheran, what do we do with honor your mother and father? Because given its position on the list, it should be about our relationship with God. But in reality, isn't it just about our relationship with other humans, like two particular humans to be sure, but humans nevertheless? So here's how I think about the answer. Like when I try to summon my most powerful, primal memories of being loved, I think the majority of them come from time spent with my parents, just doing simple things or even doing nothing at all, just being around them. They taught me what love is. And actually for me, so many of those loving moments actually have to do with sports because let me tell you something about my dad. He always hated sports and he still does. But when I was a kid, I had no idea because to me, all I knew was that he wanted to go to baseball games with me. He wanted me to play basketball. He coached all of my teams and he'd stay up with me and watch big games just because that's what you do when you love someone. And I'll tell you, whenever I think about that gift that he gave me, that that selfless love, I think that's the closest I'll ever get to truly understanding what divine love is. There's a taste of heaven in that relationship, at least if you're fortunate enough to get it right. So because of that, I'm both super passionate about sports in general. And as a child of the 90s who grew up in New York, I'm super passionate about my beloved, if perpetually disappointing, New York Knicks. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why I'm such a longtime fan of our guest today. He's a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, author of an unbelievable new book on the 90s Knicks that drops today called Blood in the Garden. He's the amazing, the incomparable Chris Herring. Chris, thank you so much for being here. Rabbi, thank you, first of all, so much for that introduction. I think it's, I, I can't speak for how you feel about my work, but I, I feel like anytime people kind of put me in that atmosphere, it's it's too much, but I, I really appreciate how big a fan of my work you are and 
and for you having me on in the first place. Thank you so much. That's really kind of you to say. So actually, I want to clue you in. So basically, every Orthodox Jewish sports fan like whose parents got the Wall Street Journal back in the day knows who you are because... I think because <laughs> I think Jews who keep Shabbos, right, who are Sabbath observant, like we might be the biggest remaining audience for print edition sports sections on Saturdays. So whenever you would appear in the journal, I was like, yeah, that like because people would make fun of the, like us who got the journal. Like if you got the post or the daily news, you had like a real sports section. If you got the journal, it was like it's not a real sports section. I'd be like, nah, but we got Chris Herring and then everyone would admit it, you know. <laughs> so. <laughs> so the 90s Knicks were maybe one of the ugliest teams I've ever watched in my life in terms of their style of play. And I love them, don't get me wrong. But like, what attracted you to these teams, right? To writing a whole book about them? Because especially being a Chicago guy yourself, I mean, these Knicks teams are basically built to try and beat Jordan's Bulls, right? So why the 90s Knicks? Well, I think it's what you just said that, I mean, think about, and, and this is me saying this as a Chicagoan, but I think it would be true of anybody. Think about how much media we've had on the Bulls teams from those years, even just during the pandemic. You know, whether you asked for it or not, you got 10 parts of the Michael Jordan documentary. Since that, we've had a Scotty Pippen book that came out, you know, a couple months ago and all the media that came with that. There had already been documentaries done on those teams before, you know, even during that era, the the Lakers teams, there's a book that came out on the, the Lakers dynasty that came after that. There's just been so much always. There always is so much about the teams that win about the teams that really define an era. There's a lot less on the teams that finish in second, which is really interesting considering that, you know, I think if you look at 30 for 30s and the way those rate, just as far as how many people watch them, I still don't think there's been a 30 for 30 done that had a greater viewership than the Fab Five documentary, which was a team that did not win, but was a team that really shifted the paradigm without winning. There was, you know, so, so it's rare that those are, teams that are really focused on, but in some cases, depending on who's involved, who they were up against, what the odds were for them, what the story is behind it. Those a lot of times can be just as interesting, if not more interesting in some ways than the team that is the focal point. And to me, especially once I researched it, but even before that, I think this was true. The Knicks, I described them this way in the book. They are like, if you've ever seen Forrest Gump and there's all those scenes in Forrest Gump where Forrest is shaking the hand of the president, but has to use the bathroom. So obviously the president is the focal point of that scene. And then Forrest is just kind of there doing something weird. The Knicks strike me that way from those 90s years because they never were the clear focal point. They never won the title, but they were always in the picture somewhere, whether it was Michael Jordan doing something you know, to, to dominate them, if it was Reggie Miller, if it was the stuff with the Heat. If it was the OJ chase during the 94 finals, the Knicks were always there, but they were kind of in the background or they weren't in the limelight firmly. And so, of course, they're interesting for all those reasons. The fact that they changed the way the league operated because of the way they played defense and the way the league did not want them to play defense, (laughs) just the personalities that they had on those teams and the fact that they kept kind of breaking the hearts of their fans, even though the fans were madly in love with them because they felt like they represented the city very well. So I wanted to write about them for all those reasons. And I hopefully those come across in the book. So actually, I think one of the key concepts that that I think of the the Bible as having introduced to civilization is the notion that trying and failing repeatedly is an essential part of what it means to be human. Sure. 
you know, there are no demigods and regular mortals like you would have, let's say, in Greek myth. There's just like humanity, imperfect as we are. And so as much as the Knicks, like you said, just like tortured us ugh, like again and again, like getting so close in 93 with Charles Smith, getting so close again in 94 and getting killed by John Starks like, and over and over and over again. What's the most important thing to learn from the fact that these Knicks just never ended up making it to the promised land? Like what's maybe your favorite story of defeat that we could learn from? I, I think. Actually, what you just said is part of what made them so intriguing to me. Obviously, you know, people were like, do you have a different ending for the book than what actually happened? And it's like, I couldn't quite do that. It's still a nonfiction book. Your book is like Wicked or Cruella, you know what I mean? Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I couldn't quite do that. I couldn't just make up an ending. But I do think that there's something I, I say that really in the last pages of the book is that the way that journey started and ended, it started by them kind of being boxed out by the Jordan dynasty. And then it ends with them being kind of taken out by a team that would then become a dynasty in the Spurs, more or less. And so it, it kind of was bookended that way. But there was a lot to that. Think of somebody like John Starks, who you, as you mentioned a moment ago, in 1994, had pretty much the worst Game 7 performance you could possibly have. Shot 2 for 18, 0 for 11 from 3, in a game that they lost by 6 points on the road. Also someone, by the way, who at the very beginning of the series in game one shot three for 18 and got to Houston for the start of that series two days after his uncle had passed away. And so was flying into the series from Tulsa because his uncle had passed away unexpectedly. So was dealing with that and then played lights out from games two to six was really the only reason they had a chance because Patrick Ewing was not particularly good in that series. And then shoots poorly is, is not a strong enough word to say how he shot in game seven. But the way you look at it, the way I look at it in some ways, and I wrote about this, I think people who are Knicks fans have one thought of Charles Smith in their head, who was obviously defined by a really bad moment, I think, for all sorts of reasons. John Starks, though, you rarely, when you hear about people talk about the Game 7 performance, you rarely hear Knicks fans talking about that. They talk about him as if he was a champion. He still works for the team. He says that he has stopped multiple times per day on the street where people talk to him about the dunk that he had on the Bulls in that series in 1993, despite the fact that his defining moment or what very easily could have been his defining moment was as heartbreaking, if not more than Charles Smith's because in in part, because that lost him a championship in a lot of ways, but it's not talked about that way. So what I think it shows, at least in his case, again, maybe not in Charles Smith's, your low point, one that kept John Starks awake for nights at a time after it happened, it doesn't have to define you you can still go on and do plenty of good works. You can still do a lot in your community. John's got a foundation. You can still be a fan favorite. I think it speaks to being able to have a good attitude and being able to have a good mindset and a healthy mindset to realize that life does not begin and end with one moment, certainly a low moment. There's still a lot to be done after that. And there's still opportunities to do a lot after that. That's breathtaking. I never thought about it this way. Like I think of John's like in my head, John Starks is in the category of champion. He never won anything. But that dunk over the Bulls, like, that's one of those opportunities to just find heroism amid defeat. And, oh, my God. So just to move to something, I suppose, related, we think of the 90s Knicks as, like, the ultimate attitude team, right? Like, all brawn, no brains, like a Mack truck. But one thing I actually didn't know until I read your book was that Pat Riley actually helped revolutionize or at least popularize how teams did prep and even in some ways, like, anticipated advanced analytics. So how did that play out? Oh, he did. I mean, it's it's crazy because... 
you know, I, I wanted to include that in the book because it was something that I really didn't know either. You just assume that he rolled these guys out on the court and said, just knock people out of the air. And he did. He did. Yes, that. right. To be fair, but, um, <laughs> you know, but yeah, I mean, he got there and it, I guess it would have been fair to assume this. I mean, he knew what he was doing and he came from a, a Lakers program that he'd really installed. Um, and even dating back to the time that when he was with the Lakers in a television capacity, or sorry, a radio capacity with Chick Hearn, he got used to having to watch a lot of film to be able to break down the games as an analyst first and watched what the video people were putting together and splicing together to show for television and for radio. And then in doing that, got more curious about it and saw statistical value in it, analytical value in it, and was getting to a point where he was asking the Knicks assistant coaches to start documenting things that would later be used widely. You know, the stat that everybody references is PER player efficiency rating. Now Pat Riley was essentially asking the Knicks to do that in the early nineties at a time, 15 years before it came around, he was asking for things like plus minus, which certainly was not a thing back then. He was asking for tape that just focused on the last two minutes, three minutes of games, which now a lot of teams do that. There's stats kept on that, which is known as like, clutch time and what teams do and how they perform in clutch time, which which players take shots in clutch time. He wanted to know what sorts of plays teams are going to run in those moments. So he was very advanced from that standpoint and immediately gave the Knicks an advantage that, granted, some teams were starting to kind of just scratch the surface with that. But Pat Riley had been doing that for years with the Lakers, and it was something that he brought to the Knicks. And it was really at the forefront of teams starting to use computers. And the Knicks were certainly a team that computer companies wanted to try things out with because if you get a team like New York to start paying attention to that, of course, it's going to catch wild like wildfire and, you know, kind of spread throughout the league. And it did in that case. So the Knicks were on the forefront of a lot of things when Pat Riley came in and he changed their way of thinking. This, I mean, this totally blew me away. And I'll tell you why I asked, because it gets to the, at least for me, like the spiritual value of being a sports fan in particular. So there's a writer by Shalom Carmi. He's probably the best living Jewish essayist. He actually has a wonderful piece on sports fandom where he concludes, it's a great line. He says, surely one may live a religious life without any conception of athletic excellence. However, one can't live a religious life without the habit of reverence and love for the exhibition of excellence. And that always really spoke to me. And sports is one of the only realms of human experience where you can see like genuinely hard-earned excellence while still finding it relatively easy to appreciate it without jealousy because the stakes are pretty low at the end of the day because it's just sports. So you can really honestly just uh, appreciate and admire what you're seeing. And to me, you know, as I read this part of your book, it's not just the players that contribute to this argument. It's the, the Pat Riley's who spend so much time prepping again and again so that on the highest possible stage, when it really counts, you can perform flawlessly. So that's an important element of the spiritual life to me. And I'm grateful for finding it in sports. But I'm, I'm curious for you, like, how do you think about the meaning of sports and particularly being a sports fan? Like, it's your job. So maybe that's all the justification you need. But is there maybe something more? No, I mean, I think exactly what you were saying at the top of the podcast. I mean, for me, it was something that allowed me to be close to my dad, you know, kind of the person that put sports on my radar. And quite frankly, once once my mom saw how into sports I was because of my dad, you know, God rest her soul, my dad as well, she then would make a point to listen to the radio on the way home from work and listen to the sports related stuff just so that she could have more conversation with me when she got home. She knew it was a way in with. So sports, I mean, it, everybody's different. For some people, it's just a release. It's interesting. I get a lot of people that, particularly during the last two years, you know, maybe even the last six, when you consider just the state of the country, a lot of people that will tell me when I express 
political views, when I'll express views on my faith and anything else on social media, they'll say, I don't follow you for this. I only follow you to know what happens in the NBA. I don't need your opinion on X, Y, or Z. And a lot of people are just viewing sports as a release. They're not listening to you for anything else other than your opinion on sports or just what you think about sports. So for some people, it's that. But I mean, it's, you know, some people played the sport, so they have an interest in it because of that. Everybody's so different. But for me, it, I mean, it, the thing I loved about doing this book, I'm, you know, I'm someone that has a deep interest in history anyway. You know, some of my favorite stuff in this book was, you know, I had a random anecdote in there about JFK Jr. You know, at one point I thought I had a, a really good anecdote about Richard Nixon. And then I realized in reporting it, I was like, that just didn't happen the way someone's explaining it would have been great. Would have been a fantastic anecdote. But, you know, for me, that part of it's interesting, understanding, you know, the, the sell I've made to a lot of people, the sales pitch. Okay, so if we do have all these documentaries on Michael Jordan and all these books on Michael Jordan, can you really truly fully understand everything that there was to understand about Michael Jordan without understanding who his adversaries were and why the Knicks were such a challenge for him, even though he beat them each time? We understand that. But can you fully understand that era and what it was without understanding one of the key teams during that era and what made them tick and what made them important and what made them relevant. Can you even fully tell the story of the Bulls without that? And I thought in watching the documentary that was done on Michael that they spent maybe five to 10 minutes of one episode on the Knicks. And that was about it. I know. And it was like three entire episodes on the Pistons, you know? Right. And the Pacers, there were like two and the Jazz, obviously, which I understand. I get it. It's, it's not, to, I mean, I, I'm not a Knicks fan, so I don't need to pump them up from that standpoint. <laughs> I, I mean, it, you know, and, and to be honest, like not a Bulls fan anymore either. So it's not it's not that I was frustrated from that standpoint, but in doing the research and obviously I, I probably am biased from this standpoint. I do think the Knicks were more important to Michael's story than what they were shown in that documentary. And so, you know, as, as a sports fan, as someone that is a history fan and just a history buff to some extent, you know, a sports history buff, whatever you would call it, it all matters to me. And, and you know, to me, the other thing that was really compelling about this as a reporter, so often people want to know who you spoke to for the book. Did you talk to Patrick? Did you talk to Pat Riley? And while I think that's really important, I think what's missed a lot of times is that those are people that are talked about and talked to all the time for projects like these. So to me, I spent months, you know, tracking down the people that have never been heard from that were like not even third stringers guys that didn't make the team it was the best part of the book it so shines through the book thank you so much that was really important to me because these are people that have never been spoken to that the people that chose what music to play for pat riley when he walked onto the court the people that man the phones down on the court to be able to talk to the executives when they're angry about something and want the game ops people to show replays of a play that shows them officials screwing up and the NBA hating that. Right. And and that sort of stuff, like to me, it actually takes you inside of a mindset a little bit more to have those people because they've never spoken before on the record, but they just got all these anecdotes that are just sitting there waiting to be included. Not to mention like Anthony Mason's roommates in college and all these other things like that stuff to me made the book. And, and that's part of history that hasn't been uncovered before. So I, you know, I'm, I'm human, you know, certainly in terms of, people review the book and people go on Goodreads and they leave reviews. And they're like, man, I was just hoping I, I felt like I didn't learn anything new here. And you get people that review the books that way sometimes. And maybe it's true to some extent. Maybe some people knew these people, you know, without having to read their accounts in a newspaper or magazine. But to me, I feel like a lot of ground is broken in the book just because, you know, I, I sat and tried to talk to a good 7,500 people, not just who'd spoken before, but I would say 75 to 100 people that have never been on the record before about any of this stuff. 
And so you hope that it yields new stories. I felt like there were a couple big anecdotes that were in the book, but I feel like there are a lot of small ones too that just kind of speak to who these guys were, what this team was like, what the organization's motivation was for a lot of stuff and you know how combative they were with the league at a time where, quite frankly, you know, and they say this a lot, you would expect that the Knicks and the NBA would get along really well because they both need each other to some extent. But the, the Knicks felt like the league was out to get them constantly. And the league started to get tired of it after a while as well. Well, in fairness, they were. Nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I'll tell you, I learned more from this book about a team that I love than anything else I've ever read. Probably combined, it was fabulous. And I actually love the way you put it because, you know, in literature, some of my favorite characters are always like Reaper Cheap in Narnia, Sam Gamgee in Lord of the Rings. Like, Aaron to Moses in in the Bible, where it's like those characters who they're not the main character, but they're the ones who make everything run. They're the most noble characters. And the Knicks were always that in the NBA. Like we were the we were the side character to Jordan for a good part of our run. And that really spoke to me so much in the book. Actually, so one of the stories that I loved was you have a story uh, in the book about, you know, it's the end of the 91 regular season and the Knicks had just like blown their division lead over the Celtics in like extremely embarrassing fashion. And Dave Checkets, who's the the GM, kicks over a chair just in anger. And Red Holtzman, who's like the legendary former coach, kind of comes over to him and says, we're the Knicks, we're above that. And as a tortured fan of the last like 20 years, so that attitude always kind of when I grew up or sort of like being a fan last 20 years or 30 years, the, the attitude always kind of seemed to harm us. Like, oh, we're the Knicks. We deserve to be the best. It's a privilege for players to play us. And meanwhile, players around the league, you know, think of us as a joke. But I hadn't given much thought the last couple of years to the flip side of that, which is Red Holtzman, meaning let's act with the dignity befitting who we are, the tradition that we're heir to, whether we earn that stewardship or not. So reporting on the Knicks for as long as you did, what are the positive ways that you saw that manifest? Like Red Holtzman is a great example, but how does that like Nick's culture come through in your reporting? That was actually why I wanted to include that quote because it was, I wouldn't say it was a throwaway, but you know, I don't think it's, it also tells you how red felt, right? Because he, if there's literally anyone over the course of the, that team's history throughout the history of the franchise, not just nineties now, you know, last 30 years history going all the way back to the founding of the league. Red probably embodies that more than anybody because he knows that there's a certain standard that he held himself to. There's a certain standard that, and a certain light that he views the organization in that like where the Knicks were above that. I included that because even then during the nineties, even after the rough years of the eighties and, you know, after the, the time that they'd won the two tiles in the seventies, that red still viewed them in a certain esteem that now, if you were to say we're the Knicks, we're above that, people would be like, are we really? Um, <laughs> what What are we above? Like eating straight out of the trash can? Like, yeah. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I, I thought it was just interesting that, you know, for all the butts of jokes the Knicks have been for 20, 25 years at this point, they were, I mean, that just the cachet of the Knicks was worth a lot back then, at least to him. And I think it was true. I mean, they had Pat Riley coaching them at, at that time, not just now. But I mean, like the most impressive coach in the league, you know, I would say at least until Phil Jackson won the first three of his titles and maybe even after that. So that that was really interesting to me. There was a pride they played with at, at a time that, you know, that part of it, you, you, you leave that part behind with Red was saying, but just Patrick Ewing, nobody questions how hard that guy played or the 90s teams, period. Him, Oakley played through multiple broken bones at different times 
during his career. You know, I document that in the book. Anthony Mason, you know, kind of just speaks for himself. John Starks was a guy that went toe to toe with Michael Jordan. And, you know, I write in times of the book, he outplayed him for chunks of series to give the Knicks a chance in the first place. And the guy was no taller than 6'2". You know, might have been listed at 6'5", no taller than 6'2", a guy that didn't play more than a year and maybe a couple of days with the varsity team and in high school, played at four different colleges, left school at one point to bag groceries at Safeway. There was nothing about this team that should have been toe-to-toe with the Bulls, certainly not that first year, but even just over the course of the run. The Knicks had one surefire Hall of Famer. Nobody else was even close. I think you had Mason, Starks, and Oakley were each All-Stars once. And Mason was not an All-Star with the Knicks. It was later. It was with the Heat or the the Hornets or something. Starks and Oakley were both like barely All-Stars and probably were more All-Stars because the Knicks were really good one year in a 61 team one year. So they there was more incentive to pick a, a Nick player, you know, in, in those seasons. That was it. And the fact that they stood toe-to-toe, that they kind of essentially were... Again, a focal point of the era, not the focal point, but there was a pride there that I, I, I just don't know that people can really understand how much pride there was in it without kind of reading some of these stories and understanding the backstory or maybe just kind of understanding them through the prism of the book. I imagine it's stuff that even diehard fans have forgotten just how much pride there was. You know, I, I included one anecdote in the book, too, about a marketing person named Pam Harris who was telling me how as, as marketers, they could attach Nick's tickets to literally anything they were trying to sell. You know, if it was, I guess now you, you've got the the Rockettes and you've got the different dance teams and stuff like that that are run through MSG and you've got the Rangers and you've got other stuff that is tied to the garden. You know, there was a time where they struggled to sell tickets for those things. And they're like, you know, if we attach Nick's tickets to this as a bonus, like if you buy three of these sorts of tickets, we'll give you one Nick's ticket for free. <laughs> they They could sell anything if they were attaching Knicks tickets to it because the Knicks were just such a hot commodity back then. And and I think the reason for it, among other things, yes, the Knicks are wildly popular, but part of the reason for that, Brooklyn aside, Nets aside now, I guess, but not at the time, they were the only basketball team in the city. And, you know, that is different from football. It's different than baseball where there's somewhat divided loyalties. So, I mean, the Knicks really just, and, and I think that comes across in the book too, that just how wildly popular they were in the city. You know, I actually talk about that as being a spiritual experience for a lot of people over the course of the book, just going to Knicks games. There was something about that that just kind of this unleashing of this emotion each time they played, certainly when they were on the cusp of a title or a conference title, it was just otherworldly to a lot of people in a way that I don't think they've experienced since. I'll tell you, so I actually want to kind of dwell on that a little bit because, you know, one of the things I do love about following you is you really get the sense that sports is a window onto so many other things. And I'm a huge believer that sports, basketball in particular, and certainly in America, it's like a really important, as I said earlier, low stakes but high impact way to think about our larger society. And I think That's especially true with a team like the Knicks, since they're always one of the most prominent teams in the country, no matter how bad they are. So that's why I'm so captivated, I think, by that Dave Checkett's kicking the chair story, because I think there's an important lesson there, probably for American society in particular. We're an extraordinarily accomplished country. We've done plenty of terrible things, but also some very admirable things. And like it or not, we're just one of the most powerful nations in the history of human civilization. So we have a responsibility to aspire to some positive standard of behavior. And then you look at the way that we've 
behaved in so many different ways and so many different pockets. I don't want to put blame in any, you know, particular corner, but the way we've behaved the last couple of years as a country has just been like, frankly, embarrassing. Is there something to that? The fact that in some ways you can think of us as like the Madison Square Garden of countries. We have a pedigree that we haven't always earned, but that we're responsible for nevertheless. Is that a lesson we can take from Nick's culture in a larger sense? Yeah. I mean, it's, I had not thought about that. Wow. Um, that parallel. I, I think it's accurate that I'll put it this way. The fan base and maybe the fan base is analogous to us as Americans, you're allowed to feel good about your country all the time. You're allowed to feel good about the Knicks all the time as a fan. There are times that you're going to be more proud than others. And you want your, whether it's your country, your team, to live up to the ideals that it showed once before. I do think that's very analogous. I had not thought about it that way. It's interesting. So I want to shift to kind of the league as a whole. So one thing that I'm obsessed with, I've talked about a little bit on this podcast before and friends of mine will will know I'm obsessed with this is, so I actually keep track of just like for fun, just for my own amusement, I keep track of this particular type of sports journalism story where it will be about something pretty mundane, but in the background will be this tantalizing faith nugget, right? So I remember like the best example of this, like ESPN had a story about someone on the heat a couple years ago who got injured. And there's this line in the story where it's like, we spoke to Jimmy Butler right after he came out of his weekly Bible study and he had this to say, and then it goes on about the injury. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. what happened in that Bible study, <laughs> right? And we had, uh, actually this is uh, about a year ago, Ennis Cantor came on the podcast, Ennis Cantor Freedom came on the podcast and we talked to him about What's it like in the league from that standpoint? And he said, oh, like every team has a Bible study. You yourself actually remember reported uh, a bunch of years ago, or maybe it was on Twitter, about like the scripture that was posted on the Knicks bulletin board. And in your book, it kind of makes a few cameos. There's this like this awesome anecdote in the book about Swen Nader, which you know maybe you could talk about. But why does sports, maybe basketball in particular, feel like a disproportionately faith-inclined space? Well, I, I know I have theories on that. So what you raised about Swin Nader, and this was a recurring theme in my book. I actually just got done kind of finishing an excerpt, uh, which is weird because even once you you write the book, then there are news outlets that you want to run excerpts on it to pull a chapter or so from it to then kind of put it out almost as a sample for people to read. But then those are hard to do too, because at least when you're reading the book, you're reading it in context. You're reading chapter nine after you've read chapter eight, after you've read chapter seven. With the excerpt, you're just throwing out a random chapter that people don't have the context for. So you want to make sure that you include as much of the context as you can, which it requires a lot of rewriting and a lot of fine tuning and stuff. But I just made a reference in that excerpt to a chapel service, you know, that was held right before game seven of the 94 finals. So I was trying to explain the the backstory of that. But anyway, you mentioned Swin Nader, and then I'll answer your question just about why I think that. Um, the Swin Nader anecdote in the book was one, he had played for the Lakers during the 1980s, played for Pat Riley for all of one season. And someone had told me, actually, the, the pastor that I spoke to in the book, who Pastor John Love, who is still the Knicks chaplain, you know, who, who has been the chaplain now for, I think, the better part of 33 years or something like that. He told me that he had heard from a former Lakers player when he took over as the chaplain, that Pat Riley was particularly strange about prayer as it related to players on the team and also feeling like the Knicks players were, in some cases, almost afraid to take part in pregame prayer 
because they worried that Pat Riley would judge them for it and maybe hold it against them in one way or another. And so I, I asked him what gave him that thought. And he was like, well, I talked to Swin and Swin told me that Pat had made kind of a strange comment to him when he was with the Lakers during a flight or something like that. So then I called Swin to kind of confirm it. He's like, oh yeah, no, I do remember that. You know, he approached me at one point and just asked me kind of why, why I would have the Bible with me when we would fly on the team plane. And, you know, I told him like, I'm a believer and you know, sometimes it's just something to kind of calm me down. And Pat essentially asked him, was he sure that was a good idea? Because he worried that I might be like too passive because <laughs> of it on the court, which I don't know why anybody, how anybody makes that connection. Certainly when you've got John Starks as a frequent attendee of chapel or Anthony Mason as a attender of chapel, which by the way, uh, pastor love made a point of telling me that there were people that would warn him about Anthony Mason before he'd ever really met with them. And that uh, Pastor Love was like, you're not understanding my role as a pastor. I want to deal with the people that you think might be too out of bounds for chapel, for prayer. Those are the people that really need it, that also might benefit from it the most. And that, you know, all throughout the Bible, you've got examples of people that, for whatever reason, might be viewed as to this or to that to really absorb what it is I have to say to them. But those are the people that, you know, that you want to show that also prove that it works in a lot of ways. But anyway, so I say all that to say this. Your question was, why does it seem like it might resonate more with the NBA? My thought on it would be that the NBA is an overwhelmingly black league that I think just even to the, the beginnings of our country and our history, I think there's a lot of religion tied into black culture for better or worse. But I think that given some of the things that our country kind of started with, kind of put an entire group of people in a position where they didn't have much to turn to other than their faith. And I, I, I know that that's kind of rooted in tradition and passed down and heritage and everything else. But also, you know, as we talk about kind of hard times and a lot of things like that and other things that kind of are a part of Black culture for one reason or another, whether it is the justice system or anything else, a lot of these players came up with single parents. I know that was true of Starks and and Mason, who are among the most religious on the team. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, it was viewed as something that was good for them to be involved in church in one way or another as a safe haven for them to make sure they wouldn't get in trouble. But also, you know, just it was something that if their mothers could kind of introduce them to that, it was even better because they might not have had a male figure in their lives to really instill certain values. So church was a very, very good way to be able to do that. But again, I, I think the demographics of the NBA are different in a lot of ways than other leagues. So I, to me, that's the first thing I think of, whether that's the right answer or not. I'm not sure, but it certainly makes me think of that. I love that. Actually, and and that is a good transition because I, I want to talk about you and your own story. And I remember you tweeting about this. And I, I remember because it was still the middle of the pandemic. It was like fall 2020. And it was right when, at least from a personal standpoint, it was right when I needed to read a tweet like this. And you told the story about a Bible that your mom got for you and what it meant for you. So what's the backstory there? Sure. No, I remember my mom. uh, I remember crying when I read it. Oh, wow. Wow. So she passed in uh, 2008. And I remember when I was a kid, I went to church with my mom. When I really think about how often I went, I guess five services a week. It was three on Sunday at uh, 730 in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, and then another one at six at night. And then one on Wednesday, one on Friday. You know, that was from the age that I was maybe nine or 10 years old to I left for college. And then, you know, when I would come home for breaks from school and stuff like that. But I remember in particular, uh, she challenged me to learn all the books of the Bible and to be able to recite them uh, in order. And I said, okay. So I had a a CD that was like a hip hop, like a rap along 
um, <laughs> sort of thing. I guess it wasn't made to help kids memorize the Bible, but I was like, this might be the, the best way to do it since there's a, a whole lot of books. And as I got, as I kind of closed in on being able to be able to recite them all, she gave me a Bible that was engraved with my name on it. And uh, I would say, really, I, I don't even think it's close. It's, it's the most prized possession I've got. And, you know, and then my dad passed in 2018 and he gave me a keyboard, a musical keyboard to, it took me a long time to kind of come out of that funk from my mom having passed away. And, you know, to the point where I stopped going to church for a long while, just because, you know, I, I think I, I questioned in my own life, kind of like I've played by the rules. I've done everything right. You know, I've, I've been kind to everybody. I watched my mom live the same sort of life. Why would this happen to her? Why, why would she pass away at the age of 50? for someone that seemed to be doing everything right, that introduced me to this and introduced me to Christ. So I really struggled with that. And, you know, I had been a praise and worship leader at my church. I sang, would write, you know, I won awards for writing music and stuff like that. And so my dad, when I started going back to church consistently and was starting to sing again, really for the first time, my dad bought me a keyboard to kind of commemorate that and to tell me how happy he was to hear that I was doing some of the things that brought me joy before my mom passed. And then he passed a few months after that. And so that's probably my most prized possession from him is the keyboard because it relates to so much of what I was saying about my mom. But anyway, I mean, that, that's where, that's probably where that came from. And that's something that I hold really near and dear to me, the Bible that she got me. I can't remember whether I posted it or not, but I go through old stuff and sometimes people from my family will send me stuff. And I'm also weird. I, you know, I'll sit and Google my parents sometimes. And one of the things that came up once when I was Googling my mom was like an old article that was written in like maybe 1991 or 1990 or this had to have been 1992 or 1993 because my sister was a newborn and I was sitting next to my mom and my mom had my baby sister in her arms and she was reading us both the Bible and the photo of a newspaper story. And it was kind of the story about why my mom was doing that at such a young age for the two of us. But obviously trying to instill a lot of things. So I, I hold that near and dear to my heart too, is, is that photo and just the idea that I know that was her effort all the time. So that, that means a lot to me personally. That's gorgeous. It makes me think just because you mentioned, you mentioned hip hop and where you grew up. So listeners of the podcast know that this too, I'm obsessed with the kind of shift towards faith being a much bigger part of the hip hop scene in the last 30 years. Like Compton is one place to see it, right? So like you go from the biggest stars out of Compton being like Ice Cube, Tupac, that whole NWA crew, Dre, Snoop, to today it's like Kendrick, Vince Staples, guys like that, where faith is just a much bigger part of what they do. But I think if you want to pinpoint where the levee breaks, it's really Chicago. It's Kanye with Jesus Walks. It's Chance, probably most famously, but it's also BJ the Chicago Kid, Saba. You have like straight up like faith rappers like Sir the Baptist. Like Chicago is just a hotbed for that. So why is Chicago a place where that can kind of emerge? I have no clue. I mean, I at least had a I, I at least had a straight thought for the question that you raised before about why it seems like the NBA might be more prevalent with this or that. I don't know what it is about Chicago. I mean, we have a lot of churches here, and I mean, I I would say that maybe there's more of a a melting pot between gospel music here in Chicago and people that are more secular, that there's not always a massive divide between the two. And a lot of times people that are really skilled at one do the other and vice versa. But that's also true of Detroit. That's also true of 
know, I think of the Winans, you know, in, in Detroit and how big they've been on the music scene for a long time. And I, so I don't view it as fundamentally different. Maybe there's more of it in Chicago, but Chicago is a bigger city. I don't know what it is about Chicago that just happens to be that way or if it's something that's in the water here. But yeah, I, I, I do immediately agree with what you're saying, but I don't know what makes it different than L.A. or New York or, you know, if it's fundamentally different, I guess I'd have to think about it a little bit. But it does feel like Chicago is very prevalent. With, with that and in that, yes. And now that you're done with the, with the Knicks book, Blood in the Garden is out. It's unbelievable. Everybody should get it. So are you thinking about your next project or you're just like taking a breather? You know, it's, it's really funny. You're not the first person to ask me. That. I think the first person to ask me that was my agent saying like, what's next? And I was like, can we at least let the first one roll out first? I'll be honest in saying this. I haven't given a ton of thought yet to the next one. I mean, it's funny. And I have a friend that is working on something too. And we both, uh, a friend that also put out a book recently that is now thinking about what's next on the docket. For me, I think it's natural to look at things that are kind of analogous to what you just did. So for me, I'm like, all right, well, this could be a nice little niche in terms of the Knicks haven't won. They have a big fan base. There's a lot of people that care about them. What else can I tap into like that where a team was really close but didn't quite get it done because their story is probably just out there waiting to be told. The Knicks are special though, because there are so many people that care about them. I remember when my agent was trying to convince me to do the book in the first place. Wow. You know, Chris, very rarely do you get a bunch of publishers telling you that they want a book on this one subject, but think about it from this standpoint, all the book publishers are headquartered in New York. All the book publishers are Knicks fans. So they definitely want a book on the Knicks. They're just waiting to find like the right pitch and the right person to do it so there was already that built-in incentive for that i haven't found anything that's that's that perfect and like that lined up and ready to go yet there are plenty of really great teams that just barely missed out that i thought about them like that could be a natural team to write about but they don't have the fan base that would make it as appealing or you know the the wide swath of people that care about them as much or they're not as interesting or compelling the personalities weren't as, as bright and colorful So if I'm being honest, the thing that I think is most realistic that I'm hoping for, that to some extent is out of my control, I'm really hopeful that as we're talking about those 10-part documentaries on Michael Jordan, I think that someone will step to the plate at some point. They're already, we've actually already had one offer for it, but I'm hoping there will be more. I think that it's more likely that someone will step forward and say, this has to be a documentary, the book and the stories from that book and that team. I don't think there's any question that there's a huge group of people that care about it. I think there's obviously more people that are more willing to watch something than read it. So I think that that will happen at some point. We have to figure out exactly how it happens. (laughs) I know in at least one or two cases, there are already groups that have said that they want to step up and make real solid offers for it. But there's so much that goes into it with regards to the league needing to agree to it. Might and maybe not even the league, but just the Knicks needing to agree to it. And you read the book, so you know I'm not. I'm not. I don't think I have like a knife out trying to you know take an axe to James Dolan. But it's also honest, and it's not you know it's not really pulling any punches from the standpoint that like him stepping in really changed a lot. So if the Knicks say no, that they're not willing to let certain footage be used for the documentary, it could fundamentally change how freely certain parties will step up and say, we're going to make this a documentary for sure, because there is certain footage that we would have the rights to that then if the Knicks and then because the Knicks say no, then the league says no, that it just becomes a little bit more difficult to do it. But I do think that I'm hopeful, at least let me put it that way. I'm hopeful that someone will step up and say, this is a great book, but we've got to make a documentary out of it too. And I'm hopeful that that will happen in the next few months, next year, where we at least get the green light to do that. 
so more even more people can enjoy it even more people can watch it i think there's something you know to be said about the book that no matter how many anecdotes i got you kind of have to see some of it to understand exactly how physical they were how interesting they were how feared they were during that era that just doesn't quite come across in the book and i don't think that's a reflection of me as much as it's just it's always easier to picture it when you're watching it so i'm hopeful for that and and at some point i would like to do another book but i need a few months to, to really get into that space again, I think. So podcasts are a famously visual medium, so you can't see that I'm salivating right now over <laughs> the do- Nick's documentary. And I agree with exactly what you said. Nick's fans are perfect. I know that's exactly what you meant and what you said. Um, I agree with Chris Herring. All the aggregators get on it. Uh, but anyway, the book, uh, the book is unbelievable. I consumed it in like basically two sittings, just gobble it up. The book is blood in the garden, the flagrant history of the 1990s, New York Knicks. The author is Chris Herring. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I've, I've enjoyed this so much. Really appreciate you. Human societies are built on stories. And there are few domains of public life as ripe with storytelling potential as sports. Now, often the kinds of stories we tell around sports involve heroes, conquest, getting to the mountaintop and seeing the promised land. It's much rarer to tell stories about striving mightily before accepting defeat and learning to live with and grow from failure. But that's why Chris's book was so important to me. Teams like the 90s Knicks are incredible learning opportunities for imperfect creatures like ourselves. Yeah, sure, it's just sports, true, but maybe precisely because sports is such an easy thing to love and enjoy, we can use it as a chance to learn something important about ourselves and how to live the good life. Anyway, thanks so much for listening, and if you enjoyed the pod, then please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only, baby because it really helps people find the show. This is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I will see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast. Presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb. And sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul Shop Studios.